0: When I think of the Christmas story and the tone and tenor of my heart at this time of the year, I feel a little bit like the innkeeper. The innkeeper who wanted to help Joseph and Mary and Jesus but actually had no room in the inn. And I I find in my heart and my mind, it's crammed with many things at this time of year. I'm a little bit like the innkeeper, how about you? And uh, we're tired, we're rushing from party to end of year deadline, uh, to shopping errand. And uh, we end up being like a cat on a hot tin roof. And I just wanna ask, and I'm gonna pray for us very briefly, that the Lord would help us to not be like the innkeeper that he would empower us to make room in our hearts and minds for this amazing, amazing gift of Christ, the everlasting Father. So help us, Lord. You know our frame. You know how our, our attention wanders. You know the span of our thoughts. You know what makes us anxious and what we're looking forward to even. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would not only be the object and the subject of this message, but that you would be present here by your spirit, the same spirit that inspired the word. Holy Spirit, please illuminate the word to us. And everyone said, if you ever want an all Californian way of celebrating Christmas in a Christ-centered way, I wanna encourage you to go on down to the Walt Disney Concert Hall to uh, downtown LA and join thousands of people with Handel's Messiah choir books, living out their choir nerd dreams like me. I am a choir nerd. I grew up, how, how many of you grew up singing in a choir? No shame in that, just awesome. And uh, join, joining with thousands of other people and the LA Philharmonic Orchestra and you basically sing Handel's Messiah from the hymn sheet. It's just outstanding. Singing scripture, celebrating Jesus, downtown LA, just amazing. You, you haven't lived until you've sung led by the LA Philharmonic Orchestra conductor. It's amazing. And if you can't get down there, join us on Wednesday. Uh, we will not be like that, but it'll be outstanding. We've got such gifted musicians, little free commercial there. But you know, Handel's Messiah, is what made popular this amazing passage that Sarah read because it it begins with verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And then crescendos to hallelujah. I'll stop right there. What does darkness mean? Biblically, what does darkness mean? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Darkness, biblically, really speaks of two things. It speaks of firstly evil, and Isaiah describes the kind of dark evil that was there, and it'll connect to our dark evil too. There was huge anguish. It said there was joylessness, uh, there was distress, there was injustice, there was violence, abuse of power. But but darkness doesn't just mean evil. It means ignorance here. In other words, the people are looking for a cure for darkness but cannot find it. And in, in Isaiah 8, you find the people trying to cure their darkness and they go to clairvoyance and, and fortune tellers and, and it, it, it ends badly. That always ends badly. And the king rejects the prophet's wisdom. And so there's this death shadow that just keeps on creeping forward. And Isaiah 8 describes that they distressed and hungry they will roam the land, they will look toward the earth and see only darkness and fearful gloom. Doesn't that remind us of us these days? We look towards the earth for light in our darkness and find only gloom. Some people are looking towards Washington for a cure for the darkness. Some people are looking towards Silicon Valley. It's it's technology that's gonna cure the darkness. Other people are looking towards New York and Wall Street for the cure for the darkness, but actually they only find fearful gloom. And what Isaiah says is that there's a light coming not from the earth, but from heaven. And that light will be found in Galilee of the nations. In Bethlehem, it will be found in Jesus, and he prophesies that a virgin will give birth to a child, and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us, heaven coming to earth, because earth could not find a cure for the darkness. This is the story of the incarnation. This is the story of Christmas. For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. And he shall be called, and we've been looking at the names of Emmanuel. What, what, what is he like? What is his description? What are his attributes? And he shall be called the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, and today the everlasting father. And this is a little bit of a head scratcher to be honest because Jesus is God the Son. But here he's called the everlasting father. And so what does that mean? And I'm gonna ask you to lend me your attention as we dig into, as we mind this amazing name that he shall be called Everlasting Father. Why is that light to our darkness? I know you're asking the question or otherwise you weren't asking the question, but now you are. Well, firstly, we, we find that it's light to our darkness because there will be no end to his self giving concern there'll be no end to his self giving concern this promise about an everlasting father was made against the backdrop of Israel being tired of like the roller coaster episodic up and down ebb and flow of the judges and so the judges one would rule well the other one would be evil the other one and 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 each one would undo the good that the previous one did and eventually Israel just got, man, can we just be done with that? And can we have some longevity to those that rule us? And they asked for a king. And they certainly got more longevity than the judges because kings generally ruled for about 40 to 50 years. But we know that many of these kings, even if they began with concern for God and his people, their concern turned inwards. And so even the best kings like David, he got to a point where he was actually just, his concern was not for his people, but for his own desires. And think about kings that started off well, like Saul and and Solomon, and then just ended off terribly, not concerned for God and His glory to His people, but concerned for themselves. And Ahaz was that kind of king. And so against the backdrop of these self-concerned kings was one whose concern for righteousness and the people of God would know no end. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. In other words, he wasn't just gonna rule, he wasn't just gonna have a government, it would be peaceful for people under the government. This would not be a king who would flip-flop, say one thing one year, another thing next year to win more votes for the constituency. His solidarity with his people would have no end. And it goes on to say this, that he would establish justice and righteousness from this time and forevermore. So first, when we're talking about everlasting father, we're talking about a consistency in the one who would come and rule. And in the Middle Eastern idiom, a father wasn't just someone who had children, it's someone who ruled, someone whose care and concern was for the peace and protection of people, And the writer to the Hebrews said about Jesus, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In view of these fickle kings would come a faithful one, an everlasting father. And this is altogether wonderful in the uncertainty of our days, isn't it? We don't need so much an adaptable, relevant Jesus, we need a consistent one. We don't need to wonder, what kind of Jesus am I getting today? It's the same Jesus that you got yesterday and the same one that you will get tomorrow. There is no moment in time that Jesus as the everlasting Father will look at you and say, Isaiah, Adri, I've had enough of you. You guys are just admin to me. You're just extra, you're so needy. There will be no end to his peaceful government. There will be no time that he will say, I'm tired of being concerned about you, I'm just concerned about me. There will always be self-giving concern in Jesus. There will be no time in the future that Jesus will look at the darkness of this world and say, the light of my cross and resurrection is just not powerful enough. I've had a change of mind, church, abort mission. Houston, we have a problem. There will be no end to his government and peace and his concern for us. The amazing thing about Jesus is that he is ever present with us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us, but he's also eternal. He's here, but he's in the future and he was in the past. It's an amazing thing to think that Jesus is here with us, but he's also gone on ahead of us. That's good for us, because I don't know how you feel about the future, but I ain't so sure about it. But what we see is around the Last Supper, in the midst of darkness and uncertainty, Jesus gathers disciples. He's just been betrayed by Judas, the accountant and he prophesies about what's gonna happen. So he's with them, but he's saying, I'll tell you what's gonna happen. I'm gonna be denied by you, Peter. Oh no, it's not gonna, no, I'm telling you, I'm gonna be denied by you. Then I'm gonna be handed over, I'll be crucified, but then I'll be raised again. In Matthew 23, he says this, and after I am raised up, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Jesus is always with them, but going ahead of them. And that happened in Matthew 28. He says to some disciples, go tell your brothers, I'm going ahead of them to Galilee. I wanna say, I don't know what 2022 is bringing, but I know Jesus has gone ahead of us. I know He will never leave us or forsake us. He's with us, but He's also gone ahead of us. It's a beautiful thing. It's a mystery, but A.W. Tozer calls Jesus the already previous God. In other words, the future has already happened for Him. And that's, that's amazing because He's able in the present to give us a peace unlike the world can give. I'm, I'm a little bit of a kind of a futurist-like geek. I'm, I'm interested in reading the futurists, people who are trying to predict. But sometimes these people, like they play God. Elon Musk, Ah, oh, in three years time, we're all gonna be living on Mars. You don't know, Elon. You're not God. You didn't see COVID coming, Elon. You're not God. Mark Zuckerberg and the metaverse. Oh, in five years time, none of us will be meeting embodied. We'll just all be virtual. You don't know Mark Zuckerberg. You don't know, you're not God. Everyone talking about cryptocurrency and oh, in 10 years time, there's not gonna be any cash, just cryptocurrency. You don't know. Now, I'm not saying these people are all wrong about everything, but I wanna tell you, you listen to them and it doesn't result in peace it generally results in gloom and fear. And we just have to go, who are we listening to right now? Are we listening to the one who is ever present, but says, fear not because I'll never leave you or forsake you. And also I have gone ahead of you. I don't know how you feel about new year. I feel kind of happy that I can say goodbye to the old year, not so sure about the new year, but I know Jesus has gone ahead of us He holds the future and He holds us in the future. He's the everlasting Father, amen? Secondly, how is He the everlasting Father? Jesus bears perfect resemblance with His Father. This amazing conundrum again, for unto us a son is given and He will be called the everlasting Father. How can the same King be a son and a father, a child, and the mighty God. It's called the incarnation. It's a beautiful, beautiful theology that actually when it works out in our lives, deepens and enriches our faith like almost no other theology. This child would not just be human, he would be God. Blair Smith says about the incarnation, the miracle of the incarnation is that Jesus became everything that we are without ceasing to be everything that He is. Some of us go like, oh, okay. So so God the Son started in the form of Jesus when He was born. No, God the Son existed from the beginning. He was with God. There was nothing created that was not created by Him, with God and fully God. Amazing incarnation that the mother, the womb, that he created, he humbled himself to sit in that womb for nine months. The breasts that he created, he submitted himself to being nurtured by those breasts. There is no other God like Jesus, no other God that would go to such lengths to reach you and I that the creator would submit himself to nine months in a mother's womb. How amazing is Jesus? And so while we say, okay, he he is not God the Father, he is God the Son, and yet he said, I and the Father are one. Writer to the Hebrews said this, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He, He bears perfect family resemblance. There's this beautiful moment in John 14 where Philip comes and says, Jesus, Show us the Father and that will be enough. And Jesus turns and says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you wanna understand what God is like, look at me. If you find me full of grace and full of truth, that's what my Father is like. If you you find me holy yet absolutely non-judgmental, that's what my Father is like. If you wanna, if you find me convicted, but also very gracious, that's what my father is like. Why is that amazing? Because many of us grew up kind of thinking, you wouldn't say it, but actually you think this. God is holy, but remote, scary, and, and grumpy. And then God had a son who was a bit nicer than him. And so subtly you begin to say, okay, so I know God gave Jesus to forgive my sins so that then he could love me. And I wanna say that subtly is an affront to the love of God. The Bible says God so loved us that he gave Jesus. God did not have to give Jesus so that he could love you. God loved you and therefore gave Jesus. For unto us a son is given. God loved us so much, he knew we would never earn salvation. So he gave us a gift. As an English teacher, I had to read and study and teach a a book that probably none of you have have, uh, read called Story of an African Farm by Olive Schreiner. And in it, one of the characters says what many of us think. She says, I like Jesus, but I hate God. And it's a misunderstanding of the character and the grace of God. Both God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are full of grace and full of truth, full of holiness, but approachable because of the gift of Jesus. And when we talk about Jesus, the everlasting Father, I know it strikes a chord with us because we are shaped so much by our relationship with our earthly fathers. And it's often through the lens of our earthly fathers that we look at God the Father and that's a problem for many of us. And some of us have have absent fathers. Some of us have harsh fathers that just cannot be pleased no matter what we do. Some of us have been really wounded because our fathers have died. And so this can strike not just a chord, but a discord. But I wanna say that Jesus shows us the way to the Father. He gives us a glimpse of His relationship with His Father so that we will be drawn to His Father through His adoptive sacrifice on the cross. And He actually draws us towards the only perfect Father. Some of you like me have had incredible fathers and yet have still found that you've got some gaps and some wounds. And I wanna say, there is no wound like a father wound. In 25 years of ministry, there's no wound like a father wound. And as a dad of three, I've had to realize in the same way that I had to go to my heavenly father to find some healing for my father wounds, even though I had a great father, my kids will have to do the same with me. It's sobering. But Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the father and my perfect father is able to fill the gaps and heal the wounds that your earthly father's left. Show us the father and that will be enough. Show us the father, Lord, and that will be enough. Jesus wants to show you the father in fresh ways. He wants to renew your understanding of the goodness of the one who gave his only son. Good earthly fathers, the best work they can do is show their children the heavenly father. We provide, we protect, I hope we team with our wives well because moms play an absolutely crucial role. But boy, man, this last week, my our daughter is in London and she got COVID. She's doing fine, but she's quarantining in London and everything in us wants to be there with her, be present with her. Everything in me, like a father, wants to go and smooth the way ahead so she can fly home in time for Christmas. And I just realized like, I am limited. I am limited. I can't get there. And so every day I'll take her on a virtual walk. I'll FaceTime with her and we'll go on a walk. Show me the lights, Sophie, around Watford. And they are so ugly. <laughs> America's got better lights. Sorry, sorry, Karen. <laughs> it's true though. The truth hurts. But... uh and then, you know, it gets dark. She's like, dad, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit scared, you know? And so I'm ordering a mace online. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna walk with you. I'll be there if anyone comes. I'll shout at him through the phone, whatever, you know? But, but honestly, in my limitations, I've, I've, ha- I've actually just found myself singing hymns to her. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning in thee. Sophie, there's there's shadows of turning in me. Like I'm not completely consistent, but there is a father. There is no shadow of turning in him. He changes not. His compassions, they fail not. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord God, to you. The best gift we can give our kids is to say that there is a father better than me. Yeah. I'll do what I can, but there is a father. Yeah. Show us the father and that will be enough, Lord. Jesus opens a way to us to the, a forever family through adoption. It's not just the father, it's actually a family. And I love that, that if you look at, at Jesus' time with his disciples, what he was doing, he was building forever family. Those of us who in this church are involved in foster care and adoption will use this term, forever family. It's a beautiful term because it's meant for orphans who are pushed from family to family to family, often getting hurt along the way. And then when they land and are adopted, they say, you found your forever family. There's, there's permanence here. You don't have to be insecure anymore. You don't, we'll, we'll never leave you. And you see people that didn't have a family just start to, Oh, kids start to breathe a sigh of relief because this fear and insecurity of being left goes. And Jesus does a similar thing in his life with his disciples and in his death and his resurrection. He says in John 16, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you that the Holy Spirit who will bear witness that you are children of God, I will leave him with you. It's actually better that I go because if I go, I'll leave him with you. And he will bear witness that I will never leave or forsake you. And you see him in in, in his hours on the cross. He turns to his mom. And then he turns to his best friend, John. And he says, mother, here is your son. Turns to John, son, here is your mother. In other words, actually, there's a forever family. I'm going, but actually there's a forever family here. And then after his resurrection, another Mary comes to him, Mary Magdalene, and tries to cling and says, and he says, Mary, don't cling to me. I'm going to my father and your father. Amazing thing. I'm opening up a forever family to you. I think in the Western church, particularly the church in America that is so baptized in rampant individualism, We have not understood the gospel of adoption. We've often understood the gospel of justification. Thank you, Jesus. God the judge forgives me, thank you. But John Stott says this, justification is marvelous, but the gospel of adoption, that God the Father welcomes us into a forever family, that's the crown jewel of the gospel. Because that heals not just our guilt, that heals our loneliness that heals our insecurity, that heals our fear of rejection. And we know the church as the family of God is not perfect, but it's God's good gift, it's the package deal with salvation. You are not just a son and daughter of the father if you've believed, you are a brother and sister. And Jesus is our older brother. Do you know that Jesus died, not just to save you from hell, but to save you into a family? Like he's, he's as excited about as what he, he saves you into as what he saved you out of. I think more. And a little bit of a word about being family. I mean, since COVID, we've had to fight for family because it's been costly to be together in an embodied way. And thank you, you've carved out time to be together, and there's some risk to that. Some of you have come from smaller church families, and you say, "Man, this feels warm, but I hardly know anyone. Is this family? I mean, it's great that you have ugly sweater competitions and you know cookie competitions, and, and this is awesome. But like, I hardly know anyone. This is not family." I wanna say that's a low view of family that I have to know everyone in the room for it to be family. Just think about the first church family. 120, meeting in the upper room, everyone knew everyone. They'd been with Jesus for three years. Then overnight, Pentecost, 3,120. Was that church a family still? Trick question, yes it was. Did it feel like family? No. What did they do? They started breaking bread in homes together, eating with gladness and sincerity of heart, praying, giving to the poor, sharing. But they, got, they went, okay, we are a family. Now we're gonna work out family in different ways. When they came together in the synagogue, they did not feel like family. And actually that was not the primary thing of being together was primarily to worship and to proclaim the gospel. I just wanna say, please don't moralize size. This is not a family unless I know everyone in the room. That's just unbiblical. You just work at getting in circles with people in the family, eating, breaking bread, praying together and find family. And then, I mean, you're gonna meet some family members in the extended family that you go like, oh, I've just made a new friend. I don't even know everyone in this room, but you are family. And I wanna say humbly, but firmly, virtual church is not true church because it'll never be family. It's about half of what church is. Why do we do virtual church? It's because we are wanting to care for those that can't get here, but it's never a substitute for family. So I wanna say firstly, thank you for fighting for family. Let's in 2022 carry on. If you're not in an engaged group, let's get in. Let's make some new brothers and sisters. Let's fight for the family that Jesus died for, amen? Final point. And then we're gonna drive up to Idaho to watch our son play in a bowl game and hopefully beat Wyoming in the potato bowl. They get potatoes if they win, it's awesome. (laughs) Potatoes in a glass bowl, that's what they get, well done. And a ring. This is the um, this is the least probably appreciated element of Jesus, the everlasting Father. But I think it's one of the most precious. So stay with me for another five minutes. It's that we all have a first father who is common, and that is Adam. The Bible said that Adam is the father of us all. And we find in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 that the Bible describes Adam as the first father, Eve as the first mother, that their disobedience as they were tempted by the serpent in the garden. About that tree. You will not die if you eat of that tree. About that tree, Adam. And Adam disobeyed because he did not trust that God was good. The basis of sin is not trusting that God is good. And the Bible says that because of Adam's sin, a curse entered humanity. It was like a bucket of poison being poured into the headstream of a river and all of us had to drink from it. Theologians call it original sin. Now what we have to understand is that before original sin came, God looked at His creation and said it was good. So original sin doesn't mean you're all terrible. It just means we've all been corrupted by sin and therefore we are both beautiful and broken. Now many of us have wounds from our earthly fathers or earthly father figures or earthly mother, mother figures. But the Bible says that even the best of us with the best father figures, we have a wound from our first father. His name is Adam, flipping Adam, blame Adam. And that means that even those of us that had the best homes, the best pastors, the best teachers, the best coaches, we still are corrupted by original sin. And you and I know it. I mean, those of us that were raised privileged, we go like, why am I so jacked up? I had such a good start. It's Adam, flipping Adam. (laughs) Why is it, Paul says, and I mean, he was that. He had the best education, so moral. He says, why is it that I don't do what I should do and I do do what I shouldn't do? Why is it? Adam. This this is a problem. We have a first father. That's the bad news. And 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 says, if we can get it up there, please. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Here's the thing, our first father, Adam, he's in the garden. Satan's tempting him about that tree, about that tree. Jesus, who's called the second Adam, finds himself in another garden, it's called Gethsemane. And Satan's there tempting him too. And you know what he's tempting about? About that tree, Jesus, about that tree. Don't go to that tree. And Jesus is sweating blood, he's saying, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. He's talking about the tree, the cross. About that tree. But where the first Adam disobeyed And death came to us, the second Adam obeyed. And he said, but father, not my will, but yours be done. I will go to that tree. And the Bible says that while disobedience produced death through the first Adam, our second father, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, life came through his obedience. That's amazing news, isn't it? And that means we can face our wounds and we can face our addictions, and we can face our resentment and our bitterness and our insecurity and our temptation. We can face it, we don't deny it, but we say, you will not have the everlasting word because there is an everlasting Father whose words and obedience and life and death and resurrection outlast those words. It's just fact. It's just true. He came after the first Adam. And because he's everlasting, his words, his life, death, and resurrection will have the last say. And that's why we can sing with the carol Joy to the World. That beautiful line He comes to make his blessings abound far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Adam's curse. Think about Adam's curse in your life. Where do you experience Adam's curse? Might be through rejection, might be through abuse, might be through a cycle of sin in your family that's passed down and you're like, I hate that thing, but I find myself doing it. As far as the darkest point in your life, Jesus' blessing comes. And it's abounding blessing. It's not just a little blessing. He comes to make his blessing abound. Because on that tree, it is written, He became a curse that we might live under the blessing of God. So I want to ask as we go to the table, think of the darkest place in your life that you go, I am still living under Adam's curse. And we are going to ask that Jesus' blessing would come and abound. This is the gospel. This is what it is to submit to the everlasting Father. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we love you. We honor you. We say thank you that you are consistent. You're the same. Thank you that you have shown a way to the Father. And thank you that you've made a way. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you were a second father who was absolutely obedient to your heavenly Father. And we live under your blessing. Lord, as Adam's sin was poured like poison into the headstream. We thank you that your righteousness is poured like healing ointment into that river. And we just wanna drink as we go to the table. As we eat of the bread, we just wanna drink deeply of the sweetness of your obedience on the cross. We thank you, amen.